0: Hello, my name is Edward Collins and you are listening to Kingdom, Empire and Plus Ultra, conversations on the history of Portugal and Spain, 1415 to 1898. A new podcast series brought to you by UCD School of History and HistoryHub.ie. Dr Vivian cogut Sa is a teaching associate in Portuguese studies at the University of Cambridge. Her main interests are comparative studies in Brazilian, Portuguese and English literatures and in early modern travel writing, especially in connection to the New World. Her book, *The Admirable Adventures and Strange Fortunes of Anthony Nivet, an English Pirate in Brazil*, published in 2015 by Cambridge University Press, is the first critical edition of one of the earliest descriptions of Brazil written by an Englishman. She had previously published a translation of Nivet's account in Brazil, *As incríveis aventuras e estranhos infortúnios de Anthony Nivet*, and she has published articles on early modern travel to Brazil and on Shakespearean studies, besides three collections of poetry in Brazil and Argentina. And indeed, we're speaking today about early colonial Brazil, English piracy in the region, as well as the admirable adventures of Anthony Nivet himself. Nivet took part in one of three infamous English attacks on the coast of Brazil in the late 16th century, and he embarked as a common soldier in Thomas Cavendish's 1592 expedition and ended up captured by the Portuguese off the coast of Sao Paulo and spent the next nine years at the mercy of the ruling Portuguese. Uh, Vivian, welcome to the podcast.
1: Oh, thanks, Edward. I'm very happy to be here.
0: Thank you very much for, for agreeing to do this. Now, so we're going to talk about NIVET today, but before we discuss NIVET, um, let's discuss Portuguese activity in Brazil in the 16th century. Um, now, there are a couple of accounts of Portuguese, their Portuguese discovery Brazil, and we're not going to talk about that in great detail today, but um, the most accepted account is that it was discovered by Pedro Alvarez Cabral by accident in 1500. But can we talk about the early Portuguese attempts to settle Brazil in the 16th century?
1: Yes. In fact, it's interesting because although the discovery, uh, as it were, happened in 1500s, it took quite long for Portugal to actually show interest in Brazil as a colony. Uh, At the time, it was much more involved in uh, its enterprises towards the east and the African coast, where it had a number of uh, commercial outposts. And therefore, Brazil was left a little bit to its own devices for the first 30 years or so. Although there were some coast guard uh, expeditions sent to patrol the coast, especially because the French very soon started doing illegal trade with the Indians on uh, the dye wood that was abundant along the Brazilian coast, the well-known Brazil wood that would later give its name to the country. So, um, what happened was that, of course, they were not able to patrol the huge coastline of Brazil, and to stop the French uh, constant visits and alliances with the native inhabitants. And France was also challenging Portugal's uh, territorial rights to that area, Mm. saying that it would not accept the Treaty of Tordesillas, and unless that territory had actually effectively been settled. So all these reasons led Portugal to <coughs> change its policy towards the new found territory and decide to do something about it in terms of colonization, effective colonization. So um, this led to a very famous uh, expedition uh, in the 1530s by Martin Afonso de Souza, So he he captained this fleet that was supposed to travel along the coast between the Amazon and the River Plate, discovering more or less what the coast was like and also finding the suitability for setting up a colony. And indeed, he founded the first Portuguese settlement in the southeast, which was São Vicente in 1532.
0: What can you tell us about the early attempts to chronicle the discovery and settlement of Brazil then in the 16th century?
1: Uh, Right. It's the very first document that comes to our mind is a fascinating account of, if we consider the Cabral uh, voyage to be the actual Portuguese discovery of Brazil. This document, Charters, describes the, this very first encounter. And it's incredibly vivid and, and well-written and moving. And this is uh, a letter written by a member of Cabral's expedition who was a scribe aboard his ship called Birvaje Caminha. And he wrote this letter to the king, Dom Manuel, uh, giving the news of this newfound lands, because supposedly they found it by chance this is the official story, it, it has been discussed over the years by scholars how accidental this discovery really was uh, but it's generally accepted that Cabral on his way to India this fleet was following in the footsteps of uh, previous contacts uh, Portuguese uh, attempts to find a sea route to India so Cabral was then entrusted with this expedition but while coasting Africa He traveled too far west and was led to the coast of Brazil, where today is Bahia. So Caminha writes about this first encounter in detail and the amazement on both sides, on the beach and aboard the ships with this encounter between the natives and the Portuguese. And it's a lovely and unusually peaceful encounter between Europeans and Native Americans. It's a a joy to read. But at the same time, it's very touching because we know that very soon after that, these encounters will become terribly destructive. Um, so Caminha, I would say, is, is, is the first source. And, of course, it was a letter to the king, and it was only published in the 19th century. So it was not known to the general public until very late, like, like other documents. I think uh, the second earliest uh, account of this, uh, of, of Brazil, would be, of course, Vespucci's uh, account of his voyage aboard uh, the Portuguese fleet that went in 1502 yeah. and 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 it's it's very derogatory in a way I think Vespucci did a disservice uh, to the Brazilian Indians in his sensationalist descriptions of cannibalism of uh, Uh, excessive sexuality, it was uh, perhaps intended to create really uh, uh, a certain impact but I think it had lasting harmful effects on on the image that Brazil had. If if you see the very first... uh, Print made of the Brazilian Indians, which at the time became quite famous, and I think it was printed in Germany. It's very, it very much follows Vespucci's description of cannibalism, and you have, you know, this shocking scenes of a mother nursing her baby whilst eating, I think, a severed arm, and, and all these limbs hanging from. Yes, of course. Uh, <laughs> So, not not very flattering. And then, of course, we have later accounts of the settlement itself, which are difficult because... Portugal had this policy of secrecy, whereby any information concerning its its new colony was considered like a, a secret of state. It could not be advertised, it could not be published, it could not go beyond the limits of, of, of Portugal itself. So this, this has had a very a negative effect for later scholars like myself because you have limited access and some of these documents were found by chance much later and thereby published, but who knows what other documents are still to be found.
0: Of course, yeah. Um, this, we're going to talk about this in a moment, this uh, policy of silence or política de sigilo, mm. which has had a huge impact on scholarship mm. in our scholars of Portuguese history because we're dealing with very fragmented uh, a, fri- a very fragmented Text body of texts, aren't we? And this includes maps as well as much as everything else because we will talk about that in a moment. But
1: absolutely, I I could just add perhaps a few other accounts that I think um, also answer your question about the the, the early chronicles of discovery and settlement. Uh, I think one important one important uh, detailed account of Brazil that I would single out was written by a Jesuit called Fernão Cardin, mm-hmm. and he was in Brazil later in the century as a visiting father, and therefore he traveled through quite a bit of the territory, visiting villages, uh, doing missionary work, and. We're going to talk about this, I think, later on, but the kind of view that each narrator has, each... point of view will differ according to one's personality and background, and Kajin has a very benign view of everything he sees. He has a delightful description of Guanabara Bay. It's one of the most beautiful descriptions anyone has ever made of the bay, and, and the same kind of benign look uh, he addresses to the Indians that he meets. Anyway, he, 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 he uh, produces this Treaty, this descriptive treaty, as he calls. So it's it's a very detailed description of everything he sees in Brazil, from plants, animals, people, topography, everything. It's very rich. Some of the things he describes are described for the very first time. Mm. And and his surprise and amazement, uh, we can share in it. It's so beautiful to read it because, for instance, he... He comes in touch with uh, an electric fish, something he had never seen before. And how can you describe that? How can you describe something that is entirely absolutely new to you? And what he says is, there is this strange fish that when you touch it, your hand goes to sleep. And... And it's, it's fantastic because it's really how he's able to describe um, something that has no name, that has never been seen before by a, a European. So, you know, just to give you an idea.
0: Yeah, this, this is quite a common problem among new writers in early early Spanish and Portuguese discoveries, wasn't it?
1: Yeah. Absolutely. And, and it's one of the elements that makes this whole field of studies even more fascinating, isn't Absolutely. it? Because it's, it's a discovery in many levels. It's a linguistic discovery. It's an existential discovery. It's, a, you know, it, it, it's a cultural discovery, obviously.
0: Yeah, it's, it's quite something to read um, early 16th century scholars trying to explain a pineapple or an armadillo to a European audience who has no concept whatsoever of what they are or how they might taste or what they look like. Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of the great, um, one of the most interesting aspects of, of looking at early modern literature in the era. So we talked earlier about this uh, Politica de Sigilo or policy of silence. Which was, um, I suppose, a semi-formal system of uh, suppression introduced in the late in the the late 15th century by by successive Portuguese kings. And it wasn't consistently in force. But the idea was that they would suppress information relating to discoveries in in Africa and in Asia and the South Atlantic. And of course, this included discoveries uh, in Brazil for political reasons. And what was suppressed were information about uh, their discoveries, such as charts and maps and so on. But it also applied to literary
1: works about Brazil, didn't it? Yes, I think, uh, for instance, in Cardin's own case, this same Jesuit I've just mentioned, there's a very interesting story about this because uh, when he was traveling in 1601 from Lisbon to Rome, he was captured at sea by English pirates and he was brought to London uh, and imprisoned and his papers were confiscated. And of course, among his papers, he had this treaty, The one I've just talked about, he had this treasure of information with him and uh, he kept pleading with them, with the English saying that they should return his papers because they, they had absolutely no value to, to them, the English. They were religious papers. And please, please, please could they return his papers to him. And we have the letters he wrote from prison to Robert Cecil um, really, really uh, begging him to to give him back his papers because he knew he was carrying a treasure, really, a treasure that if it fell in the wrong hands, it would have disastrous consequences. But the English were... N- no fools, and the people who captured Cardin at sea, they immediately sold this manuscript to Richard Hakluyt, who later on passed these papers, or, well, somehow the papers passed on to Perkus, uh, another editor, and who had them published, translated into English, and published anonymously. So it was only in the 19th century that it was discovered that actually that text was written by Cargin. and but the information contained there was really precious, so it must have felt like a disaster that such a, a detailed information about Brazil fell into the wrong hands. And similarly, uh, Gabriel Soares de Souza, who was a Portuguese settler in Bahia in the 1580s, he also wrote uh, a very detailed description of Brazil. And it's inhabitants, it's riches and so on. And he, uh, uh, said this, um, that it was very risky that if, if this text fell into the hands of the enemies of our holy Catholic Church. Yeah. <laughs> So the so-called Lutherans, um, that they would certainly equip their fleets and come to people this province. So the idea was that if they discovered how rich Brazil was, uh, you know, the other European nations, especially the English, would rush to, to send over thousands of settlers and occupy everything, which, of course is a bit imaginative.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you think that in a sense, um, non-Portuguese narratives of Brazil can be seen as more objective than those written by Portuguese chroniclers, since they may not have had the same uh, political reasons for writing? Uh,
1: I think this is a very interesting question because um, the judging objectivity of these narratives is a very tricky business. I think all chronicles uh, have an agenda Yeah, it may vary but they always have an agenda and they will always be oriented towards this agenda in varying degrees of uh, how explicit this, this is in their narratives so if you, for instance if you take uh, Jean de and André Téfi the, the French chroniclers that are so uh, much referred to when we talk about early colonial uh, Portuguese attempts in Brazil um, they have very different perspectives of Brazil because they have had very different experiences and the purposes of their narratives are also different. So, Lehi, for instance, had a much more thorough experience in, in Brazil and he decides to write... Many years after TV, because partly because he feels outraged that TV, uh, claims so much authority in writing what he did when he stayed for such a short time in Brazil and he had very little experience with the Indians. And of course, there is the religious dissension as well. So, and Tevez, what are his purposes? What are his motives in writing? He also has this, very importantly, the reputation as the royal cosmographer in France, and he wants to <clears throat> play this part and show his vast culture, especially of, of the classics, and, and how he could apply this to his voyages, and so on. So he, be- he becomes very well-known, and I think Béry also resents this. Uh, so, Gauging objectivity is really tricky when you are dealing with these early chronicles. For instance, if you take Hans Staden, who is the other, the best known, I would say, non-Portuguese writer to describe Brazil in the 16th century, and of course his work. His book, I think, is the most famous account of early Brazil and certainly the most well-known account of cannibalism. Uh, He has a different agenda and it's largely informed by his religious beliefs. Uh, So it's interesting how you uncover a lot more about the chronicler himself than about what he is actually describing, because these aims and these purposes, they surface in in these texts very vividly. You just have to read them carefully and you hear a very different voice from each writer.
0: And of the attempts to describe the various indigenous societies and cultures by Portuguese writers in the mid to late 16th century, which do you think were the most notable?
1: Um, well. The first one that comes to mind is the book published by a man called Pedro Magalhães de Gandavo which is really a pioneering kind of work. It was published in 1576, but there are earlier versions from about 1560. And it's known as História da Provincia de Santa Cruz uh, because Gândavo uses the, one of the earliest names given to Brazil. Before Brazil became known as Brazil because of the the dye word, yeah. it was known as Terra de Santa Cruz, Provincia de Santa Cruz. Um, and Gândavo writes an amazing account of uh, the peoples, of um, the land, a little bit of its early history of course with several allowances so for instance he describes this strange monster that once washed up on the shores of uh, Santosh and it was half man half animal and 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 so there's a kind of overlap with indian lore as well so he describes uh, the indians and he is the one responsible infamously responsible for the formulation that the the language the indians spoke in brazil lacked three letters uh, f l and r and because they lacked these three notions of fair faith lay law and hey king and so their language somehow mirrored their uh, lack of civilization, and, and he was very critical of the Indians. There is no evidence, though, that Gandalf was ever in Brazil. So that's something that makes us think as well. So where where would he have received his based his information on? Would he have spoken to travelers uh, who had been there, or settlers? He doesn't he doesn't tell us where he got this information from. A lot of it seems quite legitimate. It will be, but of course, because he's one of the first to write, many people later were sort of reproduced what he was saying already, uh, and then. Somebody I have already mentioned before is Gabriel Soares de Souza, this settler from Bahia, who is a f- fascinating story because he wants the, the king's favor for an expedition inland in search of mineral riches. And, and in order to get this favor, he decides to write the most detailed description of the captaincy of Bahia. And he is fantastic. Although he is a farmer, as it were, he has such uh, observational skills, and he's able to express himself so well. He writes this um, incredibly detailed account also of the Indians, although, again, very critically, he's, he's very disapproving of Indian habits, Indian culture, everything, but still it's it 's a kind of record to us, and he takes it to Spain because at the time it was the Spanish king that the crowns were united. he takes it there and he eventually he 's granted this uh, royal support for this venture but he dies um, I think he dies during the expedition, so he never fulfills this dream, but we uh, We benefit from the fact that, you know, in order to get this support, he wrote this unique account, which, of course, as others, remained unknown to the wide public until very late, until the 19th century. It remained lost somewhere, a manuscript version. So, yeah, I I would single out these. But, of course, I think perhaps the, the... the most notable descriptions of uh, uh, early contacts between Europeans and the Indians written by Portuguese uh, chroniclers would have been the Jesuit missionaries. Uh, They offer the single most detailed um, account, description and record of the lives of the Native Americans in Brazil uh, they were really involved in, and, and the Jesuits of course, they had that <laughs> strange resilience whereby they would walk uh, huge distances inland, go into the bush barefoot and live, you know they would take enormous risks because they were so convinced of their Uh, mission that, uh, again, it's to our benefit because they had this system, this uh, system of reportage whereby they all wrote letters. They had to report back to Rome uh, regularly. And these letters are incredibly vivid, really an amazing uh, document about the early Indians' Uh, the early uh, contacts between Indians and and the Portuguese.
0: Right. Um, Can you talk about the ways in which uh, early Portuguese settlement disrupted and changed um, native populations? Because we touched on this briefly. Yes,
1: Yes, I found a a Quotation by John Hemming, who is, of course, one of the greatest historians of Brazilian Indians, uh, which I think reflects very well and, and summarizes very well this bleak. Picture. He says, during the three centuries since the Portuguese first landed in Brazil, the Native American population of at least two and a half million had been reduced by probably three quarters. At the end of the colonial period, the few Indians living under Portuguese rule were pathetic creatures at the bottom of society, Mm. half acculturated stripped of most of their tribal traditions and pride but entirely failing to adapt to european ways and it's so sad yeah. this this <laughs> conclusion that he reaches after a lengthy and detailed account of you know the, the relationships between the relationship between europeans and indians in brazil from from the discovery but i think it's it's actually true um it, there was a complete disruption, if not outright destruction, of native societies, uh, not just in Brazil, of course, but in Spanish America, um, and, and basically due to enslavement, ill-treatment, and disease, as we know, um, yeah. Yeah.
0: Were there many accounts of cannibalism in 16th century Brazil?
1: Yes, there were. Of course, cannibalism became a hot subject since Columbus arrived in the Caribbean and even, of course, the word cannibal being associated to the Caribs and to the Caribbean uh, sort of lent itself to the whole of the New World and, and with Vespucci, as I mentioned earlier, um, and actually I have quotation from this butcher which I think sort of describes this so well yes this is what Vespucci wrote in one of uh, his letters in 1502 about Brazilian Indians. He said, human flesh is an ordinary article of food among them. You may be the more certain of this, because I have seen a man eat his children and wife. And I knew a man who was popularly credited to have eaten 300 human bodies. And I think this, this, somehow epitomizes very much the kind of attitude that will prevail in many accounts of the new world during this time, which is drawing attention to widespread cannibalism and um, a cannibalism that, as, as Vespucci describes, is irrelevant of, of who is being eaten. People would eat their relatives, they would eat their own wives and children, they would eat endless people which of course is known to be untrue Uh, much of this was often written on hearsay very little of it actually from uh, you know uh, personal experience um, or or testimony I mean if you think of of, um, Columbus himself first time he mentions, of course, is because he hears about a different tribe being described by the tribe he's talking to. And if we take into account the linguistic difficulties, this is another thing. How did Vespucci understand all this? Of course there had no there were no translators aboard at that time it was too early to have people that could actually translate interpret for the Europeans the, the native tongue so it probably by gestures you would infer all all these elements uh, this
0: is um i think this also epitomizes the problem with vespucci himself and says a lot about him and his um tendency towards casual sensationalism for his own benefit. And it's, it's one of the many problems I have with Vespucci. Yes. But that, <laughs> yes. I, have, I have many problems with him, but mm. that's another story.
1: <laughs> I understand. But I think I find it really uh, useful that he feels the need to say, I saw. Mm. And I think this just tells us how important it was, uh, to try to ascertain to your readers that it was actually from personal experience that you were an eyewitness, which in fact was a very rare. Situation In most accounts, just like, as I mentioned, Gandalf, we don't even know if he had ever been to Brazil before he wrote. So a lot was secondhand. I think uh, after Vespucci and Columbus, interest in the new world came to be bound up with interest in the exotic. And there would be endless and often serious discussion about... Um, the nature of the Indians, who they were, where they came from, uh, what they believed in, did they have a soul? And I think the issue of cannibalism fitted in with this. Um, and, and the contact with this previously unknown uh, multitude of people with their own and varying uh, characteristics, produced a mixture, of course, of fear and fascination. So I think the European attitude then would uh, shift between trying to normalize elements of Indian culture and, and find similarities and find explanations or find explanations in the classic uh, tradition that would justify their behavior or On the contrary, to make them even more exotic, so to draw attention to the most exotic elements in Indian behavior or the most primitive and brutal um, and inexcusable behavior, which, I mean, cannibalism would be a good example of. Um, So, I think one interesting change, turning point, is when Hanstadten publishes his book in 1557 about his captivity among the Tupinambá in the southeast of Brazil. So Staden is, is a German uh, mercenary gunner who works for the Portuguese in the captaincy of São Vicente. And while he was one day patrolling a fort in Bertioga, he was captured by a tribe of uh, Who were enemies of the Portuguese? So they capture Staden, uh, believing he is a Portuguese. And they keep him captive with the intent of of eventually killing and consuming him in the ritual uh, uh, kind of execution. But things don't go as planned and, and he's held captive for longer and eventually he manages to <laughs> to leave alive. Uh, it, one has to read his story to, to really understand all these uh, turning points, but still he is an eyewitness. And he describes very vividly, very simply what he sees.
0: Uh, his first-hand account.
1: His first-hand account. I mean, it's understandably the most famous account of cannibalism, and it's, it still is. I mean, it's a bestseller from its inception to, to nowadays. Hmm. Films, plays, novels, everything has been written based on, on Staden. Um, so, I think, in a way, it was an important turning point, because it's, it's a good countering of this Pucci's sort of um, imaginative and, and tendentious account to a more downward sort of even a, a more a serious ethnograph, ethnographic attempt. But again, I'm always coming back to this. Each writer has his agenda and then Staden has his religious beliefs which in a way kept him alive. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. Uh, and, and, and they seep through his writing. So it's, it's a way of, of um of giving thanks to his uh, delivery from the hands of the cannibals, and and the book will be a kind of um, way of of retribution for that. So it's interesting. It gives a, a different perspective on cannibalism, but I think in a way it just... Um, increases the interest and the fascination about uh, Brazilian cannibalism. But can I just mention something that is mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> a bit of a deviation? You can edit it out. Uh, no, it's okay. Uh, having grown up in Brazil and having studied superficially about its native inhabitants at school... As we do, we are taught some basic myths and legends, um, some basic notions of who the Tupi were and are. I actually had never been told that there was any cannibalism until I went on to do my PhD research, which I think is, is incredibly meaningful that this has been sort of erased, edited out of Brazilian history. Um, And I'm still coming to grips to understand why this is so, why it's kept from the... I mean, maybe it would be too scary. Maybe they want to show a benign image of the Indians, but not so, because the Indians are still are second-class citizens in Brazil and and their rights all the time being challenged. So why is this?
0: That's, That's very interesting, because... As as you know, as we both know, it seems to have been um, a topic that was very much discussed and almost obsessively by early Portuguese and Spanish discoverers and explorers from the time of Columbus and Vespucci right onwards.
1: Exactly. And and I think when, when we come to talk about Anthony Nivet, uh, he only refers to the Indians as cannibals. It's It's like the general term he applies to any Indian irrespective of if they are really cannibals or not, because as we know and he knew, not all tribes were cannibals. Yeah,
0: yeah. He just assumes. So let's turn to um, English privateering in in Brazil now. Uh, Can you outline some of the English voyages to Brazil in the 16th century?
1: Right. Uh, There were actually numerous English voyages to Brazil in the 16th century from the very beginning. I I think the first records we have are from 1526. There was even um, an Indian chief that was brought to the court of Henry VIII uh, then for his entertainment. Um, So it's quite fascinating to see that there was actually quite an intense maritime activity between England and Brazil uh, in the early days of of the Portuguese colony. We know little because just a fraction of these voyages yielded documents that are still around. So what we know is fairly limited, but we may assume that there had been much more than the actual recorded voyages. Some of these voyages we just know by name. We know the names of ships, but we don't actually have any records of of the actual voyage. Uh, But of course, after 1580, things changed because uh, the Iberian crowns were united under Spain and one of the immediate results was that Brazil became an enemy of England. So, um, any English voyages to Brazil were considered a threat. But before then... There was actually a lot of uh, trade going on on the coast. Uh, English ships would come to trade, uh, sometimes illegally, even after 1580. I think I would single out a very interesting uh, voyage whose record, luckily, has survived, uh, which is the voyage of the Minion of London. Um, it, was, it was a very eventful voyage that took place in 1581. And it happened because I think it exemplifies this this kind of uh, connection, because an, an English uh, commercial agent called John Withall uh, had been living in Lisbon for quite a while. Actually, there were there was quite a community of English uh, merchants living in Lisbon and working there uh, throughout the sixteenth century. Uh, Less so towards the end of the century, of course, with the political turmoil. But until the 1580s, it was a thriving community. And and this man, John Withall, left Lisbon to go to Santos in Brazil, uh, seeking commercial opportunities and ended up marrying into a very well-off family there, a a Genoese family, a a man who owned a a sugar mill and who was quite powerful. And he writes back to his... um, to the, the the people who were funding him back in England, who were very powerful uh, merchants in the city of London, saying that they should send a ship with merchandise and that they would make a lot of profits in Santosh. That, you know, now that he, John Withall, was there, he could be the sort of go between and they could exchange this merchandise for sugar and he could ensure that this would run uh, smoothly. So these merchants decide to equip this ship the minion of london and they send it to Santosh. And things don't go according to plan, as usual. Lots of things happen, of course, because it's the 1580s. At the same time, the crown is being unified in Spain. Brazil becomes an enemy. England is an enemy. And there is, of course, the religious difference. So the welcome they receive in Santos is not exactly positive. Everybody is unsure. At the same time, the people in Santos are quite eager to trade. They, they would love to trade, you know, sugar for those, uh, that mer- merchandise. And they stay in Santos for four months. And things are really not going anywhere. So, they eventually, they have to leave. And they leave and they go up to Bahia. They don't go back to England. They go to Bahia. And in Bahia, everything goes wrong. And part of the crew deserts the expedition. They just stay, they stay on land. Uh, one of them (laughs) joins the Jesuits. The other one, who was a surgeon, he simply decides to stay on and stay in Bahia, and he makes a name for himself as a very successful doctor. He is later on mentioned by another traveler, an English traveler, who writes an account. So, you know, and, and then eventually they, they, they go back to England, and they are in trouble because they, they didn't make the profit they were expected to make. They have to respond uh, to you know there is a, an inquiry, and so on, mm. luckily, we have lots of records of this voyage. interestingly the the best known records do not mention the time in Bahia because that 's when all the trouble happened, so either that was um, censored or these people decided not to mention this, so they wouldn 't get in trouble with the authorities back in England. But they describe at length the stay in Santos uh, and what happened there, and John Withall. And John Withall is then mentioned again by Nivet. So you have these English travelers sort of um, staying in Brazil, either shipwrecked or deserting from their original uh, voyages, and then. Carrying on living, John Withal actually tells in his letter, we have the letters of John Withal, and we have the letters from the merchants in London, and we have a description of the voyage by the, um, the ship's purser, the person in charge of the money, uh, but John Withal tells them, he says, I now live here, I'm well married, and my name now is João leton so he he translated his name into Portuguese, not really translated, but he creates a version of himself in Santos. And one wonders what happened to João Leitão? You know, he probably has all these descendants nowadays in São Paulo. (laughs) And it's a fascinating story.
0: Incredible. So finally, then we'll talk about Anthony Nivet. First of all, how did you become to be interested in Anthony Nivet? Who was he and how did he come to be in Brazil?
1: Right. So, Anthony Lovitch, as with many people from this time, we know little about him, relatively little. Um, He was a young man when he joined an English uh, privateering expedition heading to the Pacific under Thomas Cavendish in 1591. So, they sailed from England then, and the idea was to stop over in Brazil, as many other English ships had done before, just to replenish the food supplies, the water, maybe plunder a little bit of sugar, and then head down to the Straits of Magellan, across the Straits to the Pacific, but, as I mentioned before, things didn't, <laughs> here again, didn't go uh, as planned. Uh, and he ended up, uh, it was a disaster, of course. They When they headed down to the Straits, it was far too late in the year. It was too cold. And... Um, The men started starving, they couldn't cross the straits, they were short of food, they lost track of, uh, the fleet sort of broke up and lost, they they got lost, and uh, in this whole situation, Antony Nivet contracted frostbite, so he was no longer able to work or walk, and as was common in those times if if a sailor or a mariner is useless they are just dumped in the first harbor, and that's what happened to him. He was actually not a sailor. He was a soldier. He joined the Cavendish expedition as a kind of foot soldier. He was very good with, with uh, his musket uh, or the, the guns used at those times. And, and so he was left in, on an island on the coast of Brazil to die, basically, because he was half starved, he couldn't move, he had gangrene and so on, but he survived. Uh, I came across Nivet's quite by chance. I was researching on the early history of Rio and the first Inhabitants of Rio. And I came across this crazy Englishman who spent nine years uh, in Brazil working for the Portuguese, suffering at the hands of the Portuguese. And every single mention to him seemed unbelievable. You know, he had gone inland with 12 Portuguese, all of them had. Ended up eaten by the Indians, except for himself. Except for him, you yeah. know. All the story sounded so unreal and impossible. There must be something strange about this guy, and and that's that's how I took an interest. and And this was it. Yeah. yeah
0: um, we we'll go back to his adventure or misadventure on on the streets of Magellan. Uh, because. His descriptions to pass through it with Cavendish, I mean, they're, they're fascinating and they're arduous. And you mentioned Frostbite. Um, at one point, he recounts in great detail the horrors of Frostbite. And he does this in such a deadpan and impassive manner that... I wonder at times if he isn't doing it for comic effect almost, uh, because of its, <laughs> its, its, it's morbid. it's comic. Yeah, incredible. <laughs> and it's incredibly morbidly humorous. And um, I'll just quote briefly what he says about it, because he mentions it twice in succession. Uh, the first time he says, It was my fortune to go ashore to get some food, for the allowance of our ship was little, and coming aboard again with my feet wet and wanting shift of clothes, the next morning I was numbed that I could not stir my legs. And pulling off my stockings, my toes came with them, and all my feet were black as soot, and I had no feeling of them. Just is incredible. And then, incredible. E- even more incredible to me, is the next uh, description where he describes somebody else. He says, um, From this place we went further into the straits, having the wind against us. And with the cold air died every day out of our ship eight or nine men. Here, one Harris, a goldsmith, lost his nose for... Going to blow it with his fingers, he cast it into the fire.
1: Unbelievable! <laughs> it's extraordinary, yes. isn't it?
0: And it seems to me yes. he, he seems to be to be, to be very, um, in spite of this, a very matter of fact narrator. Would you agree with this?
1: Absolutely, I agree. I think this is a little bit annoying about Nivet is because he seems to lack sensitivity. Uh, And I think this, this appears even more eloquently when he describes the various expeditions he was to be involved in with the Portuguese in search of Indian slaves. And sometimes he just says, and we killed all the old men, women and children. And it's just like that. In a sentence, there is no, no hint of any emotion, any reaction. But to be honest, if you study Elizabethan England in depth, um, you've realized there is a certain mentality at the time of, um, of action, of um, not much emotional engagement. Of, um, and, and whenever there is a show of emotion... It, it's, it's um, carefully crafted. It's no coincidence that this is the time of Elizabethan drama. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. that the, the displays of emotion were very much part of, of a studied behavior. Not so much, I, th- I think spontaneity was not really part of the picture. This is one side. I think the other side is that, it was a crude experience. Uh, overseas voyaging at the time was very often, more often than not, uh, going to your own death. Uh, no, no pers- clear perspective of of returning. So people had a kind of detachment in terms of emotions or. Re- being in touch with their own feelings or reactions that to us seem unbelievable and disturbing. I feel this while I was researching Nivid. It often disturbed me how, you know, so he was so plain about so many things and you don't get a glimpse of his thoughts. He's very descriptive, he's narrative, but very rarely does he express any emotion, any emotional reaction to the shocking events that he witnesses or in which he is involved. So I think it's partly the times, the culture he, he was coming from and partly his own self. You know, he's very blunt and, and I think he had very limited writing <sighs> skills. I, I don't think he had so many words. We were talking about words before and how travelers lacked the words to describe yeah. the newness of the Americas. I think in ter- with Nivid the saying sort of is true, but it, it's more general. If he was if he were writing about England, he would lack the words, too. He wasn't a talented writer at all. I think so was, it
0: wasn't it wasn't just the fact that his uh, sensitivity also apparently succumbed to frostbite.
1: <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think that's what he was, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh, so how reliable a narrator do you think he is?
1: This is a very important question, because this has been uh, this this word reliable has often been attached to Nivit's account. How reliable is it and of course, he was never great, greatly valued by scholars by historians because they considered him a little bit like what you said about Vespucci. you know he is exaggerating, he is an unreliable narrator, things he says are unbelievable. Uh, but I, I I disagree with that to a certain extent. For example, I think when when you're dealing with accounts from the 16th century or these early travel accounts, I don't think the word reliable is is relevant, because it, it's a whole different notion of how experience is turned into text um, and testimony. And I think this is a moment of real discovery in many levels, as I said before. So the, the limits between truth and fiction are not definitely very different from the ones we hold today. So it's hard to apply this kind of judgment to how people uh, experience this new uh, g- this newness at the time. I don't think you can really apply reliability. On the other hand, I think uh, it's shocking to see how Nivet refers to names and place names and names of people, which are actually all true. And elements of Indian culture or locations. He really insists on giving details, I think, because in a way it's almost as if he anticipated that he wouldn't be taken seriously, that people wouldn't really believe. He often says, well, you know, this and that person still living in London can, can confirm what I'm saying. I think when he talks about Harris, who lost his nose, he mentions that a few mariners were still alive in London at the time he was writing, and they could, they could verify this information. You could verify it with them. So he, he's constantly going back to the issue of reliability and truthfulness, because in a way he, he, I think, anticipates that people might doubt him. And it's shocking now with the knowledge we have of Brazilian documents that a lot of what he mentions was actually true. Of course, a lot of that could not be uh, ascertained in London at the time. People wouldn't know about the Sa family, Salvador Correa de Sa, his son Martin de Sa. It could all have been invented as far as they were concerned. But we know that was all true. We know they had the sugar mill. We know they went inland in search of slaves. We know there were tribes with those names, except for one tribe that Nivet mentions, which I couldn't find any other uh, mention to that tribe elsewhere. But again, it might have been a tribe. He got the wrong name or really a tribe that soon disappeared like so many others. So the issue of reliability uh, is is a very complex issue in terms of Nivet, I would say.
0: And um, there appears to be throughout his work a a very high body count, (laughs) doesn't there? Um, Do you think there's any sense that he was exaggerating this for dramatic license?
1: He might have been, yes. I think it was not uncommon in in accounts from this time um, to exaggerate in numbers. I think this is one thing. Another thing is that possibly it would have been very difficult to estimate the exact numbers. Indeed, uh, Indian tribes could be very numerous they could have a lot of people at the time. We do know that in the early uh, stages of uh, Portuguese settlement there were so many Indians that soon would vanish because of death or migration. So, yes, in the thousands, it could happen. But I think so two things are um, working there. One is a degree of exaggeration, maybe. Another one, I think, is the sheer impossibility of actually giving a more precise number because in other accounts, you also find this kind of, you know, I don't know how many thousands of Indians were involved or usually it's a huge, you know, a very different proportion of Indians and white men. This is one thing you find again and again, which is obviously true. So, yes, I think he was, he might have been partly exaggerating, partly ignorant.
0: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, Now, he's captured by the Portuguese. And he's made to work, among other things, in their sugar mills. And he's he's essentially a slave, isn't he? And he attempts to escape from captivity more than once. And I find this interesting because he mentioned a couple of times in the narrative that um, after escaping from captivity, he'd actually prefer to be eaten by an animal rather than be captured by the Portuguese again. And he says, um, now, we are at the foot of the mountain called Paranapiacano, a desert, Mm -hmm. where many have been devoured with leopards, lions, crocodiles, surococcus and diverse other serpents. Notwithstanding all these fearful inconveniences, we chose rather to fall into the paws of a lion and the claws of a serpent than into the bloody hands of the Portugal. So how brutal was the Portuguese treatment of Nivet? And do you think, again, he's using some dramatic license?
1: Well, I I think this is a brilliant question. First of all, uh, it's interesting to think that when he's saying we in this passage you've just read, he's referring to himself and an Indian whom he met during one of his escapes. So he's escaping the Portuguese and he bumps into this other uh, escapee, because this Indian also was also escaping from the Portuguese. He had also been working in the sugar mill, but he had committed some kind of crime, and he had also escaped. So both of them, they, they get together, and and he says, I had never had such a good friend in my life. It's, it's so touching. It's a very rare occasion when Nivich shows any kind of emotion, and I think it's telling that he's saying, You know, my best friend was an Indian. That's what he's saying. So he was really, he didn't make much of a distinction, uh, which is quite, I think, admirable in terms of those times. Uh, So he would rather stay with uh, this man, who becomes such a close friend of his, and they journey together uh, for a huge uh, stretch of of, uh, land. So I think this is important. Uh, he hated the Portuguese, of course, Nivet. He was he was very mistreated by them. He he was given to the service of the governor, Salvador Correia de Sá, uh, to work in his sugar mill. And Salvador Correia had two adult sons. Uh, who uh, were engaged in inland expeditions in search of uh, Indian slaves? They were very ruthless and they used Nivet as a kind of go between because Nivet was so talented with languages. He, of course, spoke Portuguese. He learned very soon, he, he picked up the Indian dialects. He clearly spoke some Spanish as well. He spoke English. So he was uh, exploited in this sense. He was sent. Inland in these expeditions, which is quite remarkable if you remember that he probably had a limp. He had lost a few toes, so he was sort of disabled in a way, but not enough so that he couldn't go inland. So he was very resourceful. And the Fa family clearly saw this and used him. And every time they promised him something, and they never kept their word. So once they promised him to give him one of the Indians as a slave, when they got back, he didn't get a slave. Or they promised him his freedom, and... And he felt very humiliated by that. Again and again and again, he was being humiliated and used by this family. But strangely, I think it's a kind of mixed relationship with the father, with Salvador Correa de Sá. Because uh, the father is also kind of father figure to him. Although over time, over the nine years he spends at their service, despite trying to run away, being recaptured... He sort of um, moves upwards from a kind of slave to almost a personal assistant to Salvador, and eventually Salvador takes him with him uh, on his trip back to Lisbon uh, as a kind of footman or something like that you know page so it's it 's a shift in position from an exploited slave. To a kind of household member, but again, he resents Salvador because he gets very ill in Lisbon, and Salvador does nothing for him, just you know leaves him in a room in the house and won't even send a doctor. So there is something about Nivet that he he does have some mixed feelings. He feels resentful. He's a little bit whining, you know. Yeah. Oh, after all I did for them, look, that's what I get. So it's a kind of. Large relationship, in a way. Yes. How to explain, really? I mean, awful and understandable that he wants to get rid of the Portuguese. If he, if he can escape from the Portuguese, he will be happy enough. He really hates them. But with Salvador, I think he also nourishes different feelings.
0: Almost Stockholm syndrome, in a way, I suppose. It may be, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um. For me, one of the most fascinating aspects of Nivet's account are his descriptions of his environment, because I, I find that they're very immediate and, and visceral, and I particularly enjoyed his description of the frog-eating snake, where he describes how his friend Harry Henry Barrowell went to find fogs to eat and return with news of the snake. So Nivet recounts this and he says, He told us that a great snake was by the bogs and that it leaped up and down after him. Then the Indians said that it was a kind of snake that flieth at the fire. I asked Henry Barraway where I might find the snake. He told me at such a place and I took the handle of an axe, being of a heavy black wood and a little wax candle and a guard, because the snake could not spy me and made it very ready. When I came to the place that my friend had told me, I lighted my torch and was so near the snake that if I would, I could not shun her. The snake had a great frog in her mouth and as soon as she saw the fire she put the frog out of her mouth and raising up her skin like the scales of a great fish with her mouth open she offered to fly at me as soon as her mouth was open. I struck at her and hit her on the head with, and the teeth and I crushed her brains. As soon as I had struck her I threw my torch one way and ran half a dozen steps the other way. The snake made a great noise in the water but I looked still towards my torch to prove, if it were true, that they would fly in the fire. But when I saw no such thing, I went and took my torch again and very warily went to the place where I had struck the snake, where I saw all her head bloody and her eyes broken, and so I killed her. Um, Are there advantages to these kinds of gruesome descriptions as opposed to more academic distant accounts collected by chroniclers?
1: Well, um, I think, again... I think this is what Nivet could offer. Uh, I think he wanted to be as close as possible to his perception of that experience. And this is how he could do it. Uh, Many other chroniclers, even better educated than Nivit or more resourceful, were not necessarily distant um, or academic. You know, I think at this time it was very important to give a vivid description. And it's interesting how um, it was very important for travel chroniclers to... Try and prove their reliability by claiming they were not embellishing their text. So, this, in a way, was um, an asset. It was a virtue that they, they felt was important. I don't know if Nivet did this consciously, but even in, in Machiavelli, for instance, who's not writing a travel account. But he makes a point of saying what I'm saying is true, and and that's why I'm not embellishing it, you know, with beautiful words. Because I want to stick to the point and, and say things as they are. And I think many travelers tried to do the same, which would be uh, proof of how true it was, what they were writing about. But uh, th- this uh, passage about the snake is quite interesting because, indeed, I, I tried to do a lot of research about this kind of snake, <laughs> the suru de fogo and, and, indeed, you know, it's part of the Indian lore that, such snakes would throw themselves against the fire. Some Jesuits would also talk about this. So it's very interesting because we don't know exactly. Uh, in story, he often voices rumors that went round at the time. Uh, things he heard about. And that's another important testimony to us today. What people believed in, the exchanges between the, the, the Europeans and the, the Native Americans as well in terms of what was real, what was unreal. He describes another snake uh, that supposedly would thrust its tail into the fundaments of the victim. And, and I was very taken aback by this description because he insisted on this. And I kept thinking, why is that? You know, what, where does this come from? Is there such a snake? I don't know. <laughs> so I went on to, to do research. And of course, the the kinds of snakes that uh, that are not poisonous but they tie themselves around you and and Stifle you. They may cause the same reaction as if they were thrusting their their tails into one's fundament, because of course everything comes out. So it's, it's you know it's very graphic, but that's how he understood and the Indians understood it this way, and the Jesuit missionaries as well. You know what the snake did to people was this. It wasn't that it was actually. You know, really squeezing them to death. So, uh, and again, imagine, imagine yourself at that time seeing this kind of thing with your eyes, something that, you know, would have been completely unknown, unbelievable, and unseen before. How would you? make sense of this, of of this animal? What does it do? And I think this this episode of the snake and the frog reminds me a little bit of an earlier episode he describes with uh, the not a crocodile, but the man. when he was on the island and he was walking around and he encounters this creature that he describes in such terms that it sounds a little bit like an otherworldly creature. And you wonder for a moment whether he's really making it up, only to discover that he's actually describing a man, And he knew it when he was writing. He had had enough experience of... Um, of Brazil, to know that that was a small crocodile. It wasn't really an otherworldly creature. But the way he describes it uh, is so interesting because he tries to reproduce his own reaction to that unknown creature. So, yeah, he has some skills (laughs) as an array, you would say.
0: (laughs) His telling in general, I think, gives uh, an immediacy to the ferocity of his environment. This incredible jungle environment that he's in do you think this was popular with his audience
1: I think there was an avid interest uh, uh, in Europe a readership that was increasing uh, for novelties from the new world and all these Absolutely strange creatures, strange people, strange environment. People were looking for the exotic. And I think this was clearly very popular. I mean, that's one reason in the first place why he might have decided to write down his adventures. Nivet didn't want to become a writer. uh, And he never again mentioned his adventures. So it's fair to believe that he wrote this. to to earn some money, you know, to sell it. And that's what people did. And it only shows that there was a market for this kind of narrative, that people were, you know, editors and publishers were ready to pay for first-hand accounts. And, and of course, returning travelers who didn't have a penny to their name were happy to sell these accounts. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, He also seems to be quite graphic in his descriptions of cannibalism which he claims to have experienced firsthand. And um, again, I'm going to quote a short piece of text. Because, uh, frankly, I could spend the entire podcast quoting from this work. It's, it's such as this. Uh, it speaks for itself, literature. doesn't it? It really does. When he describes one incident of cannibalism, he says, um, there came a lusty young man with his arms and his face dyed red and said unto him, dost thou see me? I am he that hath killed many of thy nation, and I will kill thee. After he had spake all this, he came behind the Portugal, a Portuguese prisoner, and struck him on the nape of the neck that felt him to the ground. And after he was down, gave him another that he killed him. Then they took the tooth of a coney and opened all the upper skin, so that they took him by the head and the feet and held him in the flame of the fire. After that, rubbing him with their hands all the upper skin came off and the flesh remained white then they cut off his head and they gave it to him they took the guts and gave them to the women after which they jointed him joint by joint first hands then elbows and so all the body after which they sent to every house a piece and they fell dancing and all the women made a great store of wine the next day, they boiled every joint in a great pot of water because their wives and children uh, might eat of the broth. For the space of three days, they did nothing but dance and drink day and night. After that, they killed another in the same manner as you have heard. And so served all but myself. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, He's very liberal, of course, in the use of the word cannibal, isn't he? Yes. Um, In terms of describing cannibalism, how trustworthy do you think he is?
1: I don't think he's trustworthy there because I think he uses as a general term for Native Americans. You'll see he uses indiscriminately to all kinds of Indians he he meets, even those who certainly wouldn't have been uh, doing uh, the ritual execution and and consumption of of prisoners. So uh, about the... The description of cannibalism, it it strikes me as well how detailed he wants to be. But another thing that strikes me, and I think struck him, and again, I go back to the point that it's you learn more about the chronicler than about the thing he is describing, is what really draws his attention. And I think one thing that impressed him very much was this last dialogue between the prisoner and the executioner. And it was indeed true. Uh, this was part of the ritual, it was an essential part of the ritual. Actually, uh, the Portuguese were often laughed at by the Indians because they would not comply, they were so scared of dying, that they would not engage in this uh, dialogue, this ritual dialogue, in which both parties, both sides uh, sort of... um, say angry words to one another they would just whine and cry and say please don't kill me and that was unbelievable to the tupi you know the right thing would be to stand up and say okay you kill me but my family will come and kill all of you and eat you so it's no use something like that uh so but but nivet he reproduces this dialogue Uh, which shows, and he reproduces it more than once. He he gives it there, but then he gives it again, I think which shows that he was really sort of, it it drew his attention. But he never, something that also struck me was that he never really clarifies where he was standing, you know, amid all this. How close was he to the actual killing and consumption? Did he eat from... You know the the feast. Did he share in that? He keeps it uh, to himself. He's very clever in this sense. And
0: why did why did only he survive?
1: Exactly. Well, this, this seems
0: I, to be very convenient.
1: Um. Well, according to him, and I think he's very candid there. Um, he tells them that he's French, which <laughs> which again was something really common in on the shores of Brazil that people mm. would. they would try to save themselves by claiming to be of a certain nationality or, or mm. of a certain religion. You well know that anyone shipwrecked on the coast of Brazil uh, who was not Catholic risked being killed, uh, but many claimed they were Catholics and they were spared. Uh, so the same happened with the Indians, you know, Hans Staden keeps trying to explain to them that he's not Portuguese and he says, I'm French, I'm French. Uh, He was not, of course, he was a German, but he worked the same way. But then they call in a Frenchman to, you know, to test if he's really a Frenchman. The Frenchman says he's not a Frenchman and he's in trouble (laughs) again. And Nivet knows very well this complex set of allegiances that the French were allied to certain Indians and that the Portuguese were allied to other kinds of Indians and they were enemies between them. And my theory is that when they are When they arrive at this village, he and the 12 Portuguese men, he knows exactly what kind of Indians they are encountering. And he, he makes the decision of claiming that he is French and leaves his companions to say they are Portuguese. So he betrays them, clearly, to save his own skin, which he does all the time in the account, let's be frank. Uh, But I think that's why he's not eaten, ultimately. And he says this. He says, oh, I was very relieved and I told them, we have been friends, our ancestors. You know, so, (laughs) of course, if he were to explain English, they didn't even know who the English were. Mm -hmm. But French, yes.
0: (laughs) Very good. Okay, so, uh, Nivet then, we talked about his attempted escapes, uh, but... After a number of failed escapes and recaptures by the Portuguese, he eventually managed to escape to Angola where he was again captured. But how did he eventually manage to get back to England?
1: Right. So when he was captured in Angola, he was sent back to Brazil and And again, he was treated very badly there. He still lived in the sugar mill for, uh, I think, a couple of years. And then his master, Salvador Correia de Sada the governor, ended his term uh, as governor of Rio de Janeiro and and retired, as it were. So he was going to go back to Portugal. And as I mentioned before, he takes Nivit with him back to Portugal. This would have been maybe early 1600s. Uh, so he goes to Lisbon with Salvador and he's living in Salvador's house in Lisbon uh, and he decides to make a living for himself. So he has relative liberty, I would say, because he, he finds himself work. Uh, he finds work for himself at the, at the customs house as an interpreter for Scottish and, and English merchants. And he is interpreting because of his wide knowledge of languages. And he makes some money. But, as he tells us, when the governor finds out, he has him arrested. And that's where the narrative breaks off. And, in fact, later research, largely done by a man called Richard Hitchcock... Not long ago, uncovered that uh, Nivid mentions very briefly uh, a a mistress uh, Foster a nun in an English convent in Lisbon. And apparently this woman had a family connection with Nivet. As you know, this was a time when many Catholics fled from England to live in Iberia or in France. And, and she would have been one of these and they they had a clandestine sort of network um, uh, in place. And, and, the theory is that she might have assisted Nivet in escaping from Lisbon back to England. What we do know is that he arrived in Portsmouth, near Portsmouth, in 1601, in, in a Carville, uh, coming from Lisbon, because there is a record, of course, saying that he, uh, three hulks from Setuvo by Lisbon came to anchor in Stokes Bay today in which were two merchants of Amsterdam and Anthony Nivet, an Englishman born in Wiltshire who has been prisoner in Spain and Brazil these seven years. Um, it's 1601. This is September 1601. So all we know is that he arrived in 1601, back to England, how he managed, we can only infer, and we imagine, I mean, based on Mr. Hitchcock's finds, that that maybe this Mistress Foster, which was clearly a, a false name, helped him, that they had a kind of network in place that would help stranded English men in Portugal to return.
0: Yeah. So, Nivet, then, his account, he apparently wrote it in the first years of the 17th century, um, a version of which eventually ended up in Samuel Perkis's uh, 1614 edition of his travel narratives entitled Perkis, his pilgrimage. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about Perkis and how Nivet came to be in this collection?
1: Right. So Perkis was a very interesting character. He was an Anglican minister and he had a, a passion for travel writing inasmuch as it referred to religion. So he was interested in understanding religious in a universal way, how the mm. Christian faith, um, he wanted to prove the truth of the Christian faith by comparing the people living everywhere in the world. So he, was, he collected travel stories, travel accounts. Um, and he became close to Richard Hacklitt, who was actually the... The, the, the well-known publisher of, of travel writing uh, his principal navigation um, publication of course was <clears throat> an incredible achievement and it, it gathered together uh, a, an amazing amount of, of um, travel accounts but the principal navigations came out in 1600 or 1601 and, and Hacklick died in 1616 so, um, we don't know exactly how Haklid's papers came to end up in Perkis' hands, but in fact a number of his papers did. We don't know if he purchased from him, if he inherited, if he... Um, it, Took them from Hakluyt, or how how he came to have them, but he did, and so in in 1614, so when Hakluyt was was still alive, um, he publishes his Percuses pilgrimage, which actually is not the accounts themselves, but he paraphrases the accounts of travelers. So he te- retells them in his own words. Uh, so we have the first mention to Nivet. We know that he he has this in his possession. Um, but he will only publish Nivet's account um, in its original form in 1625 in Percocis' Pilgrims alongside all these other accounts. But... Uh, both men were very different in terms of their aims and in terms of their methods as well. So Hakluyt, of course, was a geographer. He was a statesman. He, he lived abroad. He, was, um, he worked for the crown. And he was highly cultivated. And he had all these connections. And, and he was very thorough as an editor. Whereas Perkins... Interfered a lot with his materi- in his materials, and for this he has been criticized ever since, so he wouldn't hesitate to uh, cut and amend and summarize and and add his own comments to everything he published. but the fact is, he published a lot of important materials that otherwise would have remained unknown and perked and per- nivets and among materials. Yeah. And also, yeah. of course, Fernão Cardin, as I mentioned before. Yeah. Of course, yeah. So,
0: finally then, um, how important is Nivet's work, and why?
1: Well, Nivet's work, in my opinion, is crucial in understanding uh, not only early colonial Brazil, but the relationships between Brazil and England in the 16th century. Uh, he provides a wealth of of information about things that we still know very little. We have a very limited amount of sources to understand this time in Brazil. And so NIVIT being the earliest detailed um, description of Brazil made by an Englishman is really a treasure trove for a number of, of uh, fields of studies, uh, all the information he gives about the Indians, about the topography, about the geography, about the early settlements, about the uh, Portuguese policies in terms of uh, the slave trade, the expansion towards the, the in- interior or going further north, because he, he participates in historically... Uh, relevant campaigns um, that the Portuguese did in, for instance, Rio Grande do Norte. And then when he escapes to Angola, he gives us a description as well of what he finds in Africa and and the, the Portuguese in Africa at that time. So... Everywhere you look in Nivit, you find something interesting, important, and relevant. And of course, I mean, coming from literary studies, I feel particularly uh, drawn uh, to to the other aspect of his personal way of narrating, which is unnerving, as you mentioned before. It's very opaque. It's very hard to get to the heart of this narrator. But at the same time, you can... uh, really conclude a lot about him and and what, what he chooses to describe and what he deliberately leaves out, what draws his attention and what doesn't seem to have any kind of importance to him and even his limited set of words his crazy spelling and and the text itself can be a bit mesmerizing because it seems to be hand- to have been handled with a lot of neglect. Uh, the, the chronology at one point goes completely crazy and it took me a long time to come to the conclusion that I think some pages were put in the wrong order by the, the typist, by somebody during the printing process because it 's the only explanation you can find, because otherwise Nivit's memory is absolutely remarkable. The amount of words he remembers from the Tupi language, the amount of names that he quotes and mentions only somebody with an extraordinary memory could do that. clearly he wasn 't taking any notes while he was there, you know half naked, running here and there, <laughs> so he was writing for memory and 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 um yeah, so I, I think it's 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 absolutely uh, necessary for anyone interested in Latin American studies, in early modern travel writing, in Brazilian studies, in early colonial studies.
0: Yeah. And, of course, you have a forthcoming publication in which you translate and co-edit 12 accounts of English travellers to Brazil. Can you tell us a little bit about this?
1: Right, so this project... Uh, in a way um, derived from the NIVIT project and it's part of a work that I've been doing for many years with my colleague in Brazil Sheila Hugh who's a specialist in 16th century Portuguese literature and, and travel and so on and uh, what we did is we selected eight voyages, uh, eight English voyages to Brazil between 1526 and 1608, and their respective uh, narratives. So we have 12 narratives of these eight voyages. And these narratives range from letters to instructions to accounts Reports, descriptions, um, it's, it's incredibly multiple in terms of the different narrators as well. You have seamen, you have cosmographers, you have merchants, you have settlers, and uh, they, they just show the richness of these first exchanges between England and Brazil and Portugal at the same time, uh, and, and, you know, ranging from investigation expeditions to commercial expeditions to plunder, outright plunder, after, of course, the enmity between um, Portugal, Spain and England. After the 1580s, you have all these privateering expeditions attacking the coast of Brazil like Cavendish himself. So it's really an interesting overview of, of this period. Yeah.
0: Excellent. Well, I really look forward to that. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Vivian Colgold-Lisada Sá's book, The Admirable Adventures and Strange Fortunes of Anthony Nivet, an English pirate in Brazil, is available from Cambridge University Press. Vivian, thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much, Edward. It was my pleasure.